0: I'd say, like, stress and pressure was a very big thing for me. Once I started performing really well and was, like, on this streak, then it's like, okay, I have to keep it up. I don't know. It just there was so much pressure there.
1: Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and how we can all level up with help from the pros. Now, Today we're chalking up for a chat with the most dominant comp climber the U.S. has ever seen, Natalia Grossman. Now Natalia's an impressive competitor, y'all. You've surely seen her smiling her way up the hardest boulder and lead routes out on the World Cup circuit, where she climbs with such grace and, and speed that it almost looks effortless. Though as you're going to hear today, there is plenty of effort and struggle that have gone into Natalia's climbing up to this point. And the results of all that effort are mind-blowing. In 2021, Natalia became the first American in over 20 years to be crowned the IFSC World Cup champion. In 2022, she made the podium at every Boulder World Cup event, nabbing five golds and one silver. And for the past three years, Natalia has won the overall IFSC Boulder World Cup Let's Go. She has one of the most impressive comp resumes in the world, with ten golds, three silvers, and one bronze at the World Cups. And then just recently, Natalia won gold in the combined Boulder and lead Pan Ams in Santiago, which secured her ticket to the Paris Olympics, representing the United States this summer. And while she doesn't have a whole lot of time to climb outdoors these days, that didn't stop her from taking two of the hardest routes at the Red River Gorge just this past fall, which is where I met up with her, where she sent Southern Smoke and Lucifer a couple nails-hard 514C or 8C-plus routes, and she's also sent multiple V13s on rock. So her outdoor career hasn't even gotten started yet, and she's already absolutely crushing. She's got a really bright future, no doubt. I mean, she's already crushing. But one of the things that really struck me as I was talking with her for this show was how much struggle she has already faced in her young career. Struggles that have shaped who she is as a climber as well as a person. And what she shares with us today I found to be incredibly inspiring and also really applicable to those of us who just love this sport in all of its forms and want to get better at it. All right, quick little update from my world over here. I just got back from a quick weekend climb trip out to Vegas. You guys, I spent the day climbing with Alex Honnold up at the Clearlight Cave where we each struggled on our respective projects. Such a cool day. We filmed everything for an upcoming YouTube series that I'm going to be launching later this year, so stay tuned for that. And side note, if you haven't already, pop over to the Struggle YouTube channel and smash that subscribe button. Is that what Mr. Beast and Magnus Mitvo say and and people who know what they're doing over there? I don't know. Let me know comment comment below that's what they say right anyway had such a good time there and then also spent a day with the one and only Ravioli Biceps struggling on the moonboard in his infamous garage it was the only 2024 moonboard set in north america as it turned out and man we had a total blast on it what a good guy I learned so much. Honestly, y'all, to spend a day with those guys, like, and be on the receiving end of their mentorship was a total dream, and it also helped me to improve so much, even just spending a few hours with them. Like, in real time, I was learning about tactics and technique and, and watching them do their thing as I was trying to do my thing. It was just really, really cool. And... You know, I had to spend years grinding away here in the podcast slash utility closet to make that happen. But guess what? You don't have to launch a podcast to work with a pro climber. You can do it right now with Jordan Cannon through his Shared Air Mentorship Program. And by the way, I saw Jordan while I was in Vegas, and we've had the pleasure of climbing together a few times. And this guy is so, so smart and so talented. I cannot imagine a better mentor than him. So check this out. This is how it works. Starting March 1st, Jordan and Shared Air are going to be holding a four-month mentorship program custom-made for a max of just 30 climbers. You can choose between two tracks, so outdoor foundations or trad climbing, a couple things that Jordan knows a thing or two about. And the program includes, get this, a master class, personal Zoom courses, Five in-person clinics with Jordan, Colorado, a climbing trip outdoors with Jordan, plus a private Slack channel and a whole bunch of other stuff. Guys, the climbing trip alone is worth the price of admission here. What a dream experience. And then just for us strugglers, Jordan and Shared Air are offering a $300 discount on the program. Just use code STRUGGLE to snag this deal at SharedAir.com. That's s-h-a-y-r-d-a-i-r.com. com. Shared Air, where climbing lives. And lastly, just a big thanks to all you patrons and subscribers out there. I love you guys. Be sure to check the bonus episode that I just dropped for you, where Natalia answers your questions, predicts what the future of comp climbing will be, reveals a game-changing recovery hack that she's using, and so much more. It's all over at the show's Patreon, which is right there in your podcast notes. All right, let's go for gold with Natalia Grossman. Yeah, it was great to meet you at Eric's Cabin, too. What a fun way to to kick this thing off. And you obviously witnessed some craziness between Alex and I as we were shooting a video. And it didn't even turn you off. You're still here to do the podcast. Thank you.
0: No, the the one thing was like when you asked him, what color can you not send it? And he was like black. And I just was like, yeah, <laughs> I should change what I'm wearing and then I'll send. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's so funny because black is like seems like the most German color. Like you just think black t-shirt, black pants for the German, the stoic German athlete. But he's obviously all about his like wildly bright patterns and things. So yeah, (laughs) we all have our thing. Do you have a color? You know, like Honald has red and Alex has yellow. What's your color?
0: I don't think I have a color.
1: Red, white, and blue. (laughs) I see you climb in blue sometimes. as blue? Yeah, is my color. Blue. Yeah. Yeah. A chill color. Great. I'm super psyched to dive in here. I'm Just, hey, I'm a fan of your climbing. I'm really um, proud that you're going to be representing our country here in Paris. And also, you've had no shortage of struggles. And that's always the best place to start, which is just how you look at struggle as a rock climber. What's your relationship with struggle?
0: I guess it can be pretty frustrating in the moment. And when you feel like you don't necessarily have control over the situation in which you're struggling. But I feel like every time after I struggle and I'm like able to see that I was struggling, it's almost like more rewarding or I'm like proud to have been able to overcome that. So it just makes whatever happens next more meaningful.
1: Well, you've been climbing for quite some time. I think you're like six or seven years old when you started climbing, right? When you really got bit by the bug and then um, started competing. And so that's been some time. It's been like the majority of your life. Can you see how your relationship with struggle has changed or evolved since you were a kid and now to where you are as as a dominant competitive climber?
0: Yeah, even looking at very small Struggle, such as I don't know if you can really call them a, sh- a struggle because it sounds silly but just like if you're working a climb and you can't do it and you're struggling to like do the climb when you're younger you're like I don't know it didn't bother me really but I have found something I struggled with was like being too hard on myself this past year so if I was like struggling a lot with the climb I was like I felt like I should do the move faster and I was upset that I was struggling but then looking back on it now I'm like that's silly because In order to improve, you have to push yourself and you have to struggle.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm excited as we click through our chapters here, certainly as we get into the mental game chapter, but likely before then to peel back on some of this because you've had some pretty major events over this past year, but even leading up to that, that would fall into a big bucket of struggle. So we'll peel back on that a little bit more. I appreciate the overview there. Let's look at training. It's always our first chapter here and you train a lot. What would you identify as as something that you struggle with in your training?
0: Something I specifically struggled with this past season was overtraining. It was the first time that I wasn't in school. And so I just had so much time on my hands that I feel like I overthought, like overthinking and overtraining. I thought way too much about like specific events and I just trained too much for me, like. Other people have different work capacities, but I was climbing too much for me. And so, you know, after struggling at the World Championships and having one of my worst performances, then I was able to take that step back and be like, okay, let's dial things back and make changes and see seeing results from those changes. So I'd say that's, that overtraining was a big thing.
1: While you were training leading up to World Championships there and... I saw you write about this on Instagram as well, that kind of coming out of that, you recognized that you wanted to return to, I think what you called like was a less is more type of philosophy. What was it, do you think, that essentially led to this poor performance and then a a realization that maybe you were just going at it too much?
0: Probably fatigue. I was trying to work a lot of different systems at once. Like every day, I was like, okay, I need to boulder, I need to rope climb, like I need to hit power, endurance, power, endurance. Like I knew this was such a big year and I really wanted to peak for this one event that I just went ham and lost sight of the big picture. And I just put so much pressure on it too in my mind. And so when I got there, I just wasn't even enjoying it. I was probably like tired from training and tired from focusing on this one comp for seven, eight months, and then having it, like, actually happen and then being like, oh, this isn't all that I thought it would be, was, yeah, not ideal.
1: You know, it's interesting because obviously at your level, which is the highest level, it, it makes sense to identify the thing, okay, world championships and say, okay, I'm going to go hard to be super prepared for this thing. Um, so, I, like, I understand, like, the drive and the mentality there. What's probably harder is to hold yourself back um, until an event happens, right? Like it was a poor performance and you're like, let me reassess. But are there things looking back? Were there warning signs or indications or, you know, the way that you train leading up to that? Do you look back and say, oh, maybe this was uh, a clue. Maybe I needed to peel back here or talk to my coaches. Because you work with, you know, you got your USA climbing coaches, right? I'm not sure if you do you train with others as well? What kind of, what's the environment like leaning up to that? And and as you look back, were there any things that, that you could have done to maybe head that off before you hit that point at World Championships?
0: Definitely, yeah. I train at the U.S. Training Center mainly, and so there's a lot of people in there. And sometimes, I don't know, it's not like the best environment for trying to not overdo it because everyone there is so motivated. And so... It's very common to hear like, oh, like I'm third day on. I feel like horrible, but then people are still climbing. And now looking back, I'm like, wow, I'm never going to do that. I feel like I just had this real, like this huge realization uh, that's listen. I need to listen to my body. And there were definitely times I was dealing with a lot of stomach stuff and then trying to push through that and train when I should have just been resting. Um, I was like having that realization after world champs, I was pretty frustrated with myself and just being like, why didn't I listen to my body? Like, why did I keep pushing when I should have just taken a rest day? Or like I had a, a colonoscopy and was climbing that day and the day after. Like, oh my God. no, I needed to take a week off. That's like really hard on your body. Or I was being tested for SIBO and like I had this, it was just like a horrible experience and i felt horrible and then went timing right after because i felt like that's what i needed to do yeah and so yeah i i should have listened to my body and taken a step back then but i was so focused that i was like no i need to keep going i need to be ready for this comp when it was in reality probably just making like digging myself into a hole slowly without even realizing it
1: yeah for sure well, I think that's relatable. I mean, I'm just a weekend warrior, but to want to maximize the time that we have in train and we think to ourselves, cause climbers are like, we're like a sick bunch. We think, oh, if I take a week off, like I'm going to lose everything. But obviously the reality is that's not the case, but it can really feel like it in the moment. So I'm curious now that you found maybe this new balance, this kind of less is more philosophy that you're sticking to with your training. And you've got to get some big stuff coming up. So it's not like you're just relaxing. What does that look like? Walk me through what a typical kind of training week might look like.
0: So I guess right now, just never really taxing both energy systems in one day. And so it's interesting because the combined format, obviously, you're going to use both. They're like two, two energy systems. So you like need right. to be able to do it but that doesn't necessarily mean you need to train that format every single day like what I had been doing. And instantly I saw increases in like my power was up and my endurance was better because I was first off. I wasn't going into another discipline already tired from the previous one. Sure. but I was just able to focus a whole session. And so mentally I was a lot more maybe present and excited. Because it wasn't like, oh, I have to do this, and then I have to go do this, and then this. It wasn't overwhelming. It was like, I'm just going to focus on one thing today. And I think there were only maybe like two days, max three, in those two months where I did bouldering and lead. Leading up to the event, I think there was maybe a day or two where I did both just so I could be prepared. But at the end of the day, you don't need to boulder for multiple hours and then do countless routes. Even at the competitions that I'm going to, you do four boulders, you do one route. So yeah, taking a step back and also like having shorter sessions Mm. and knowing when to stop. It's like, oh yeah, I feel tired. Like I'm just going to be done. Or yeah, like I'm really sore and maybe that feels a little tweaky or something. I'm just going to take two days off. And just allowing myself to do that without feeling guilty about it and like knowing that rest was going to do me good.
1: So it's wild to hear a pro talk about taking a couple of days off, but how great, because then you come back that much more recovered and snappy and powerful and these kinds of things. T- typically in a week, like when you're leading up to Pan Ams, how many days on off would you do?
0: I love to train two days on one day off, ideally. ideally. But That's then great. I'll like throw in like double rest days more frequently leading to the event.
1: Well, you touched on recovery for a second there. So before we close out this chapter, I do want to talk about that a little bit. And what do you like to do for recovery? And I'm talking about it could be sleep, it could be nutrition, it could be ice baths, like you saw Alex and I diving into at the cabin. What do you like to do in order to recover for that next session?
0: I'm a big stretcher. So I Hmm. love to just stretch. And normally I do that before a session. And what else? Oh, when I'm in Salt Lake, I go to the sauna a lot. I don't really know if it like does anything or not, but it feels really good. And that's something that I've noticed like being here in Boulder the past 2 months and not going to sauna. I'm like, "Oh, I miss it." It was just also good mentally to like unwind, read a book, although I probably had three or four books just like break from the heat. The binding would come off.
1: Right. Yeah,
0: which was not ideal. But yeah, just a place to mentally recover as well. And I've noticed I think when I was overtraining, my sleep was actually worse hmm. than now. Like, I love sleeping like 10 to 11 hours. <laughs> was like, God. You know, like, 10 is like ideal for me.
1: Let's go. 10 and hours.
0: <laughs> obviously, like staying hydrated, having good meals, eating like frequently.
1: Perfect transition. I love it. Let's shift to the nutrition chapter, which is our next area of focus here on the struggle. And yeah, this is, I think this could be an interesting one here. And I guess before I get into some of my questions, what stands out to you as an area that you've struggled with regard to nutrition?
0: Oh boy. So I got food poisoning about a year and a half ago now. Um, And it messed me up like pretty bad, very bad actually. And
1: Was this in China or, or Japan or something?
0: It was actually in Innsbruck. That was like the first situation. So like I ended up going to the ER because it was like, it hurt to breathe. I've had food poisoning before, but I'd never had anything like that. And I wasn't even quite sure what was happening at first. And we're not even sure if that's what it was, but that's what they attributed it to. So that was not a fun time. And I pushed through it. I spent the night... Um, In the ER and then flew to Slovenia the next day for a World Cup, like two days later, and then flew the next weekend to the UK for another comp. And they were like, okay, you can literally eat three things. They had me like on this like elimination diet almost. So that was was a big struggle because I had no energy. Yeah, I was like trying to compete and it just, yeah, doing big days like that was not uh, great. Then I was, like, home for a bit, and everyone was like, oh, like, it's good it happened at the end of the season. Like, you have time to figure out what happened. But then fast forward to April, there, like, hadn't really been any improvement.
1: Whoa.
0: Yeah. And then, yeah, I went to Japan, first World Cup the season, got sick there.
1: That's right. And
0: just, like, couldn't keep any food down and just felt so weak. That was a big struggle. And then came home and like things started to get better I was like finally starting to feel like myself and that was really exciting to I think it was like the Salt Lake World Cup I was like wow this is the first time I feel like myself again like having fun feeling like I had energy to compete and then obviously the outcome was a lot better than yeah my previous comps since may I've had the couple flare-ups but really since pretty much right before burn like end of July was like the last time something major happened so like the past I don't know four or five months have been great and it's it's just game changer to go into training being like I can actually give it my all I'm not limited
1: now did you in in that because it's that's happened for a year essentially what did you change or learn about your diet or, or the nutrition, the foods that either help you to perform or that just don't cause any sort of flare? Did you make ni- major changes or is it still kind of a mystery?
0: No, whenever I eat out, there's still always a little bit of anxiety. Oh, is something going to happen again? But just not combining different meals. If I go out to eat, not taste testing everything. And I think that was one of the hardest things in Japan is I love the food in Japan and like you want to try everything yeah and so it was really hard to eat out and be like I just need something simple like rice and like fish or something right um, so like sushi was good but then it was in that moment I didn't quite know what the issue was and so it was really hard to be like oh I just want to try this thing because it looks really good so now I just order like my entree and try not to really have too much else
1: Yeah. Talk me through kind of like what is – you mentioned as we were talking about kind of recovery, having more frequent meals and these kinds of things. Like what do you Mm – give me a snapshot of a typical day.
0: Okay. So my breakfast has been the same for a very long time. I have vanilla yogurt with a little bit of creatine and chia seeds. And then I've started adding cinnamon actually since the red – because Lisa Horstwood had cinnamon. And I was like, wow, that's a really good idea. Nice. And then some toast with like an over easy egg. That's a typical everyday, like rest day or no rest day. I just really like it. Yeah. And then I'll have a snack, typically like a piece of like fruit, apple, banana, or like a Nature Valley bar or something during training. And then typically I come home from climbing and then. I'll have lunch and it kind of lunch is kind of always like the whatever meal. I'm like, oh, like I'll have leftovers typically. And then I'm a big, I don't know, afternoon snacker. Yeah. So like pop, I really like popcorn or there's these like coconut almonds from Trader Joe's that are really good. And then dinner, it just depends. It's normally like a grain or like a carb of sort or like sweet potatoes, quinoa something along those lines, pasta, and then like a protein source. I don't eat meat, but so I'm pescatarian for a long time now, maybe eight, nine years at this point. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So like typically I eat a ton of fish, but if not fish, then like tofu or like seitan, sometimes tempeh, and then a veggie that's been cooked. And then I always end the night with honeycomb cereal Or life cereal. So that's like a typical day.
1: That's great, because you were were doing so well, because I was like, where's the junk? There's got to be some junk in here. (laughs) You're a nighttime cereal eater. I'm also a nighttime cereal eater, my wife and I, and we crush. But honestly, it's like Lucky Charms or Fruity Pebbles. Like, we just go ham on, like, garbage cereal. But it just, it's so so good. Or sometimes I'll do, like, have you heard of this magic spoon? It's like a protein cereal. Oh, Mm-mm. Natalia, you got to check this out. I'll send you a link. I'm not affiliated with them. I don't, they're, they're not paying me yeah, to yeah. say this, but it's Magic Spoon and it's like childhood cereal. So it's like Fruit Loops or Cinnamon Toast Crunch type vibes, chocolate, but it's 15 grams of protein in a serving and one carb. It's keto friendly kid, kid cereal. Wow. Anyway, yeah,
0: please do send this. Box.
1: I'm going to send you a link. I'll send you a box. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to freak out. It's okay. so, so good. Yes, it's yes. But, okay, so honeycomb and life, and then let's talk about supplements. What what supplements are you taking, um, or are you taking any kind of, like, throughout the day or the week?
0: I take, like, a multivitamin and then creatine. But the creatine's more recent, maybe, like, the past three months. I don't know if I've really noticed a difference. It's probably not harming me, so, like, doing it.
1: I mean, you got into the Olympics.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's it. I'll have... Actually, that's not it at all. I'll have whey, but the things I have daily are like the multivitamin and the creatine. And then the other things I'll have a few times a week. Whey protein, or I do have collagen, even though I'm technically a pescatarian. I don't know, it's the one thing. I started implementing it maybe a year ago because I really just like the taste of Fizzy Vantage, so go Fizzy Vantage. And then I'll have sometimes, actually pretty often, the electrolyte Flow, it's called Flow from Fizzy Vantage.
1: Man, I love all of those. I'm, I mean, yeah. I'm crushing this endurics right now because I'm trying to climb my project at the red and I need every tiny little advantage I can get. So give me that beetroot powder and all of that stuff. But,
0: it tastes so good too. Yeah, I it love also it. It also
1: just tastes great. And, and you said the collagen too. Like I mix like a chocolate or a vanilla scoop of collagen in with my tea in the morning and it just like makes my tea gourmet. I oh, mean here's got...
0: a pro tip though. If... You're using the collagen, I guess. I don't have a shaker normally, so I use a frother, and it works really well. Oh. So, yeah, at, it, it like, next level.
1: This is like some, <laughs> this is like a barista hack, so you're frothing your yeah. collagen in what? In, in coffee?
0: No, typically just, like, water or, like, milk.
1: Oh, just by itself. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, it just makes it, like, very smooth. Great. And I've definitely used it as milk before, like, with my cereal. Really? Like chocolate milk. Yeah. <laughs> like if you have, so I don't drink milk, but I have almond milk. And then if you like add collagen to the almond milk, then you have a lot more protein. And then you're putting your that on
1: cereal? Yeah. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: That's definitely some next level stuff right there. Chocolate collagen almond milk on honeycomb cereal. Holy smokes. I'm gonna blow your mind with some of this protein cereal too. You're like yeah, going up a notch. To it. <laughs> I love it. Anything else? Like, is there a vice that you have? Like, what's the like, okay, I just sent the proj or I just qualified for the Olympics. What's your thing? Do you have a thing?
0: Probably like pizza. But I also have it like on days where I don't do anything. Like going to a nice pizza place. Because typically we'll just get the frozen Trader Joe's pizza and, and make it in the oven. But like going out to get a a good pizza is probably the go-to.
1: Pizza's the perfect crag snack too. Chris Hampton told me this when I talked to him. He's like, forget the PBJ, forget all this other stuff, bring some pizza. You got your carbs, you got your proteins, you got your vegetables on there. So yeah, pizza all the time. Now, did you eat some pizzas at Miguel's when you were in town?
0: No, we actually never. We cooked at the house every single day we were there.
1: That is... Blasphemy, Natalia. Like, I
0: asked about it and then people told me it wasn't good anymore. Oh go and on. Uh, I listened. Yeah. The
1: old school. The old school are all all crusty and like, oh, the old Miguel's when it was in one little room is better. But I'm telling you, Miguel's delivers. The, the trick with Miguel's is you just have to order crazy toppings. If you just go and get like a cheese pizza, which is basically like what Eric and Jonathan get, by the way. It's like, yeah, it's fine. It's like some bread and and some cheese and some sauce. Now
0: that you say that, I take it back. I actually did have some, but it was like it had been in the fridge for like two days. And so it wasn't. (laughs) Forgot about that. It like it wasn't even a memory because it didn't stand out.
1: You have to come back (laughs) and you have to eat at Miguel's and you have to order crazy tacos. Like I get black bean, sweet potato, avocado, tofu, barbecue sauce. You know, like you got to go wild. Because they have every topping. That's what makes Miguel's famous is like, whatever you want, they've got. I'm vegetarian. So I just load up all the crazy vegetables and tofu and that kind of thing. And it's fire. I mean, it's really, really good. But if you order boring, then it's not going to stand out. And if it's in the fridge.
0: Yeah, it was cheese pizza that had been sitting in the
1: fridge. Yeah, it's like Eric's old slice of cheese pizza. Well, next time, Because, you know, I know Alex is like real persnickety. And so he just makes his like 30 pounds of vegetables every night in the oven. But next time, please pop out to Migs. It's going to blow your mind, especially as a pizza fan.
0: Okay. I look forward to it.
1: Y'all, I just want to give a little shout out here to Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. I have been a paying customer of Fizzy Vantage for a couple of years now, and this stuff is truly the best of the best if you all want to level up your training and your performance, and I know you do. I'll give you a little window into my routine here. There are a few Fizzy Vantage products that I take every day, whether I climb or not. First, I start my day with their superfood greens, which tastes delicious and is just the best way for me to get going in the morning. It supports my immune system and my digestive health. I just always feel like I'm good as long as I start my day with their greens. I also take their magnesium supplement every MagATP, Mag-ATP, which as it turns out, and I didn't know this, a lot of people are deficient in, and among other things, it helps me to improve my sleep which of course is really important for recovery. Lastly, I take their supercharged collagen every day as well to support my tendons and ligaments so that I can train harder and recover faster. It is all science-backed stuff. It tastes delicious, which I think is also very important. And I can also say with absolute sincerity that I'm training harder right now than I ever have before, and I have never felt better. And I attribute that a lot to Fizzy Vantage and how it's helping me to recover and perform my best. So if you're looking for that extra edge, Hit the link in your podcast app or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full price nutrition order at fizzyvantage.com. I really think you're going to feel the difference. Check it out. This episode is supported by Rungni, which of course is Magnus Mitbo's brand, and they make rad clothing and high-performance chalk at really affordable prices, you guys. I've been using their chalk MagDust for a while now, and it's awesome stuff. Whether I'm struggling outside on my project or struggling inside on the set problems at my gym, MagDust feels fantastic. It's been working great for me, it performs awesome, and it's affordable. It's at the top of a ton of best-of lists Loads of pros are using it. I think you're going to love it as well. You can score a bundle to keep your bucket or chalk bag full for an entire season, and it is not going to break the bank. Plus, right now, y'all, you can hit the link in the show notes for a chance to win a year's supply of MagDust Chalk, plus all sorts of other cool discounts and prizes. It's all over at rungne.com, R-U-N-G-N-E dot com, but use that link in your show notes because that's how you can score that year supply of chalk. Okay, Tactics. I've got loads of stuff here, but let me open it up to you. Tactically speaking, this can entail technique as well. So tactics or technique. What's been a struggle for you or is a struggle?
0: So going to the Red, it was my first proper outdoor rope trip. So there were a lot of new things that I didn't think were going to be a struggle, but were like a very big struggle. Number one, the weather. It was very cold and rainy most days, which like there's nothing I can do about it. But something that was a struggle was I was numbing out every time I like climbed and there was like only one or two times the entire trip where I didn't numb out like on a route, which is just insane. So like wow. tactics to like keep my hands warm because like it was 30 degrees like it was cold Yeah. Um, and I'm not used. To, I normally climb inside. So <laughs> and like for bouldering, like you can just put your hands in front of like a buddy heater if you need to do the boulder and then you're fine. And so just like putting a hand warmer in my chalk bag or like grabbing my neck because that's like always very warm, things like that. And then skin was another thing I had never struggled with until this trip because I would look down and my hands would just be bleeding, but I couldn't feel my fingers. So I like didn't even know they were bleeding. Right. <laughs> and so today was actually the first day I climbed without tape and bef- which like doesn't sound like a big deal, but I had never climbed with tape on my fingers before the red ever. Cause I didn't think I like could, I hated how it felt. And I just learned I was taping wrong. So Alex showed me how to tape properly. And then I was like climbing and then I came back and was climbing with tape two weeks. And today was like the first day that I was able to climb without tape. So that was very exciting, but that so, was just something I had never even thought about that skin and freezing conditions would have such a big impact.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I want to learn about some of these, these tips and tricks that you picked up from, one of the best rock climbers in the world and also who notoriously has very um, poor skin and and struggles with his, his skin um, with as much as he climbs outdoors. But, but first I think probably important to set the stage. How how much time do you spend climbing outside? Like in the course of a year, um, how much are you climbing outside compared to inside percentage wise?
0: 2022, I like barely climbed outside. There were probably just like a handful of days and, like, I I I'd never really went to a boulder twice or and any climb twice. So I wasn't, like, invested in anything. And in 2021, I had a pretty good, like, Joe's season, I'd say. Maybe, like, seven or eight weekends in a row I went. And then even had, like, a few days when I was in Europe, like, in between comp. And then 2020, I climbed outside, like, a ton. That was during COVID. Right. So kind of just, like, Depends. I grew up with parents who don't climb. I didn't start going outdoor climbing until a little later.
1: First of all, you had a hell of a trip out here to the Red from at least what I saw you post and then talking with Eric a little bit. You sent two 14Cs at the Red here and Mm -hmm. conditions were not awesome when you were here. So to go predominantly from indoor climbing to numbing out, bleeding fingers, taping, and then send two of the hardest routes at the Red River Gorge, that's pretty impressive. So what what did that teach you? Aside from learning how to tape fingers like a German pro um, from Alex Magos, what else did your time at the Red teach you, maybe specifically through a tactical lens?
0: Just like adapting is you need to be able to adapt to like whatever situation you're thrown in. And it's like, I don't have control over these things, like the weather and which was like the biggest thing and like my skin wasn't used to pockets I had never climbed pockets before Mm. so I mean I did everything I could for my skin but I didn't have control if I was gonna get a flapper or not like I I had five fingers taped and then like another one would just you know I it felt like I didn't have control so there's no reason to like get upset I guess or like to dwell on it because there's like nothing's gonna change by me doing that so just like having an open mind, and I think it just made me really excited to go on another trip. i had never even tried 8C Plus or anything that hard before, and so to see it was possible was cool. And then to be like, wow, if, if I could feel my fingers, I wonder what else I could do, you know? like <laughs> It just made me really excited.
1: Yeah, but well, you're going to have to go to different areas because there's a, a couple 9As out here at the Red, and, and that's it. So you've almost <laughs> climbed the top end here, at least until Alex puts up the project he's been working on. Yeah. But how cool to spend the predominance of your time indoors, come outside and be simultaneously a little bit of a noob and also like just absolutely crushing.
0: Yeah, it was it was so fun with the people I was with.
1: And obviously out, out of the red here, we're known for like long, pumpy, overhung climbing. You have been dominating on the boulder circuit, but also in Leeds. Maybe Somewhat surprisingly, I don't know to to yourself and, and some who've been paying attention, it's like, oh man, like Natalia's crushing it in lead as well. Obviously, you know, that went very well for you at Pan Am's recently. And I'm curious what you've learned from holding both of those disciplines. How does bouldering inform your lead climbing in comps? How does lead climbing infol- inform your bouldering?
0: Yeah, in a way, I still think they're pretty similar. At a World Cup level, if you look at all the lead climbs, you need to be able to boulder V8 at any given point. They're very powerful and there's not really much room for error versus, you know, maybe the red is just pure endurance. And I feel like we never really have a pure endurance lead route. It's always more like power endurance. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that uh, translation there that by just building a good base of like power endurance. It's going to help you a ton with lead climbing. And then it's also going to help you with bouldering because you have qualies and semis, five minutes on, five off. So you need to be able to execute hard things without a ton of rest.
1: It is interesting kind of the um, unique aspect of competition climbing. And this is maybe can what we can wrap up this tactics chapter with here is your perspective on bouldering and having a certain amount of time and a certain amount of attempts, uh, and there's some pressure to try to do it quick or to flash, but there's also this notion, at least, of maybe trying to optimize a little bit of a recovery between attempts and not rush in. And so where do you fall in that kind of tactical lens?
0: Yeah, I think something I've worked a lot on this past year, and maybe it also became more of a struggle this past year, was rapid firing. If the first move was hard, I'd just like keep trying mm. or not want to rest. Like if the f- first move was a dino or a coordination move. But sometimes even if you like feel physically ready, you're not like mentally present and ready. Like if I fall, I need a second to like compose myself mentally, even if I feel fine physically. And so just like being able to take that pause and be like, okay, this is, it's okay to take two seconds. Like with partial boulders. You need to rest. And like, sometimes I'll see people rest like a minute and a half. And I'm like, wow, that's a long time. Like I, like that's sketchy because then you only really have two goes maybe. So you have to be like very confident. And maybe it comes from a place of not being fully confident. I can do it like that next go that I'm like, okay, I'm going to rest more like 30 seconds, maybe 45 if I really need to. Maybe I'll put some liquid chalk on so that like forces me to rest or something. Like I'll have the brushers brush or something that's like, okay, this will make me rest. Because yeah, you don't want to be hopping back on if you're still tired.
1: That certainly can translate to outdoors as well. I know that when I go on a bouldering trip, I'm like a puppy and I just, I tend to rapid fire. And then an hour into the day, I'm just totally shot. And so it's kind of hard to have that discipline, whether you've got a clock ticking or not, to really listen to the body and I imagine it's doubly hard when the crowd is cheering and the adrenaline's pumping and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And and so do you force a certain amount of rest? Do you look at the clock?
0: I do look at the clock um, sometimes or not all the time, more so probably on like a powerful boulder, I'll look at the clock. But it's really not about the clock. It's like when I feel ready, that's when I'm going to go. And I know yeah. I'm going to feel ready within a minute. So I don't worry about it like too much. And yeah, that was something I noticed a lot outdoors actually with For example, like Southern Smoke and Lucifer, like very different rest, resting times. Southern Smoke is so steep. I had never really climbed anything that steep that I'd come down and be like, man, I need to rest like 45 minutes versus I think when I sent Lucifer, I rested. I like fell, came down and was back on in 15 minutes, maybe 20 because I wanted my fingers to still be warm because that was the biggest thing. If you rest a while, like you're gonna numb out you're gonna your whole body's gonna be cold and so that was like the hardest thing of the trip was just like stay warm
1: all right let's talk about mental game here natalia i'm excited for this one this is my favorite chapter got a long list but let's hand it off to you what's been a struggle for you in the mental game side of your climbing
0: i'd say confidence and doubt When things aren't going your way, like you still have to keep believing you can do it. And even after like repetitive, I wouldn't say failure, but not ideal performances. Yeah, it definitely like got to me. And I had those thoughts about what if I had my peak? Like I don't know if I can come back from this. Or I'd say like stress and pressure. Like in twenty twenty-two was a very big thing for me once I started performing really well and was like on this streak, then it's okay. I have to keep it up. I have to keep winning. And like anything less than first place is not gonna be what I don't know. It just there was so much pressure there. Yeah. That I felt from myself and like from other people. And then that definitely carried over to the start of the 2023 season because I had ended 2022 with in Bouldering specifically with such a good season that I felt a lot of pressure to perform at the start of 2023. And then I wasn't feeling good physically and So it was, it was, yeah, a big struggle to like, believe that even though I didn't feel good physically, like maybe I could still perform well and I couldn't, but I mean, it's not like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, man, I got, I don't even know what place, eighth, ninth, like, that's horrible. But like big picture, I'm like, that's not like me six years ago would have been so psyched with that result. You know, it's not a failure. It's just a little bump.
1: Yeah, but I can understand how that perspective shifts, especially when you become accustomed to standing on top of the podium. You you said you had a pretty good season in 2022. It was absolutely stellar. I mean, it was basically a a clean sweep, right? I mean, it was uh, all but maybe one, right? You won every single (laughs) friggin' thing there. And Kevy is the head that wears the crown in, in that scenario. And so I'm assuming that that's where that expectation came, whether you were putting it on yourself or others were starting to almost assume that you would win. And all of a sudden you go from maybe being the underdog or this bright light that's exploding onto the scene to now the expectation is there. And yeah, I'm curious specifically with regard to what the impact was on you emotionally or mentally as you came into 2023, how were you handling that? And were you implementing any tools to help you
0: Started working with like a sports psych full-time um, at the start of 2022. Cool. 2023. T- yeah. I-, I worked with him in 2022, but I regularly saw him in 2023. Rather, 2022 was just like in the comp season or like we talk about, like right, we'd meet right before a comp or something. Uh, but I got to know him really well in 2023, which was really nice. And then I went to school for psychology and I want to get into to like sports like my profession hopefully after climbing, and I feel like I've done a lot of research on the topic as well, just like reading books. And it's been a while since I've done that because I feel like now I have a solid base for what I like, what works for me. But also just like mindful mindfulness, meditation, visualization, staying present. I think is something that I've been really working on lately, and is something that I've learned more recently. And realized like this past season, how I was so focused on the future, like Hmm. for the world champs, that's all I was focused on. And then after world champs, I never felt like I was training for Pan Ams. I was just like, I am going to the gym to become the best climber I can be. And I'm not going to the gym to train for this one event. I'm just like taking it day by day was really quite a big thing for me that. found to be very helpful.
1: It's interesting. You had written at, it was just after Pan Ams, I think, where you were talking about a little bit of you'd lost the joy in climbing. And I think anybody who's ever seen you climb can see that you just like exude joy. You've got the brightest 10,000 watt smile as you're going up the wall or, or hanging from the finish hold with one arm. And it really lights up the arena. But then to hear you In your words as you were writing that you'd lost the joy you were you had become very outcome oriented i think you were saying but then at pan am's you you wrote and i'll quote you here you wrote the outcome no longer seemed important the joy was there and because of that joy there was no fear and that line really like just shot me like straight through my heart and so i'd love to hear you expand on that a little bit
0: yeah going into pan am's i was very excited because i had just been having so much fun at the gym lately Every session, I had just been smiling, had been having fun, had felt like I was progressing. Um, and so I was just excited to have this opportunity. That was like a very new opportunity for me. I had never, I like, competed at a multi-sport event or like stayed in an athlete village or anything like that. It was just really exciting to be in a new scenario, yeah. which normally would like stress me out a lot and cause a lot of anxiety. Because I'm like a creature of habit and like routine. So that was cool for me to see, like, oh, I can be put into, like, this new situation and and still do well. And so my mom's from Mexico, so I, like, grew up speaking Spanish. And I, like, haven't spoken it in a pretty long time, like, maybe five or so years. But to be in a Spanish-speaking country made me so happy. It was, like, something I hadn't even realized I was, like, missing – But we'd go to the gym and like talking to the locals in Spanish just made me think of my childhood a lot. And like when I would go to Mexico every summer and just like the small things like that, like the apple juice there tasted exactly like the apple juice that I would have as a kid in Mexico. And just know all these little things just made me so grateful to be like be in this new country. And I was so happy to have those experiences and have those memories come back that I was just like, you know what, like I'm here to climb and just, like, to do my best, like, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter if I win or if I don't win because the memories I'm making and, like, the experiences I'm having are already making me so happy. And so then, yeah, just, like, there was no fear of failure because there wasn't anything to lose. There was only something to gain. I'm like, so what if I don't win? Like, it's, it's fine. It's not the end of the world versus two months prior, I had been like, I really want to get, like, top three And then wasn't even close because I was so focused on the outcome Mm -hmm. and even like competing. I was just so focused on the climbing. I wasn't really like realizing or like taking note of my surroundings and what was going on outside. And then to just see very inspiring performances, like by my teammates was like, yeah, got me really excited to compete as well. And just like having some people who I love a lot be there and, yeah, it was just really cool.
1: Oh man, God, I love that so much. Just the joy and the gratitude driving out the fear and the expectation and the pressure. Because I think it's super relatable. I don't compete. Most people listening to this right now don't compete, but we can still put a lot of pressure on ourselves to do the thing. I'm trying to. I'm going out tomorrow from for session number seven trillion or whatever it is on on Jeez. you know the hardest thing that I'm trying to climb and. While I have been like having a friggin' blast with it, it, it's starting to feel a little bit where I'm like, oh man, cause I'm really close. Is this going to be, the th- is it going to happen today? Is it going to happen tomorrow? And so, um, the pressure has started to creep in and I think it's a relatable thing. Obviously you operate at the, the highest level of pressure and certainly as you're going to be representing our country at the Olympics, I'm sure it'll be turned up to an 11, but was there anything that you can now looking back, uh, Anything that you implemented on a mental game trick or or something that you discovered that might be universal or might just be relatable for somebody like myself with regard to just embracing that process and not thinking about the outcome.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is really just being present. And that was something I noticed like on my most recent trip, even like climbing outside. Um I like everyone was like, Oh, like what are you gonna get on? And I was I went there knowing Having no idea what I was going to get on whatever seems cool. Like, I don't want to put all this pressure on myself to like send a climb because then that could potentially take the fun out of it. Mm -hmm. But then I found myself getting psyched on certain climbs and be like, okay, I want to send. And then at one point I was like, oh, I really want to do this because I don't want to come back here because I'm just ready. I want to try something else. And then I was like, okay, hold on. Let's look at the big picture. Like I'm out here with friends, having fun, trying hard trying to become the best climber I can be. And so it's, yeah, who cares if you don't send? It's about the process and it sounds so cheesy, but it really is about the process and the present for me at least.
1: Thank you, I'm so inspired by it. I love that post that you did, I'm gonna to link to it for those who are listening here and how great. I mean, just just watching you walk out at Pan Am's and there was just like a lightness about you. This The smile was there, but also that presence as you're saying, like you could just see you taking it in, which was really rad because I would think that the stakes are pretty damn high there, but to have the wherewithal to just take in the moment and be in that moment, it was just really pretty powerful to see.
0: Thank you. Yeah. My grandma t- like told my dad, she was like, she wasn't there, but like on the live stream and, and she was like, wow, like she looked like, I haven't seen that sign of her in so long. And I was like, yeah, like it just felt different, and I had those feelings of what I felt like the joy I had in twenty twenty one and some of twenty twenty two that I feel was just lost by the in twenty twenty three.
1: Yeah, oh man, good for you. Well, oh, it's great you're hitting your stride here, right, right on time. Typically, I'd go on to kind of our purpose chapter here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna toss in a little sub chapter about the Olympics. Let's spend just a couple minutes talking about this because mm. it's like such a unique, cool thing. And congratulations. I'm psyched. I'm sure you're. this is, this is the dream. So what secured your spot was winning the bouldering lead combined at Pan Ams. And there's not a lot of spots, right? So to lock one away, now what?
0: I guess I haven't really thought about it a ton. Like right after I qualified, like I was definitely very excited. Um, but it's not something I like think about every day and I think it's cool for me to see that it hasn't impacted me like my training like I haven't started like proper training yet I just yeah I came home to Boulder show it was supposed to be a week to visit my family and now it's going to be like two months I like went to the red in between and we're going like on another little trip but it's been really nice to take a step back from like the training mindset and just having fun with friends every day climbing. And you could say it's training. Like I've been bored climbing a ton and everything, but it doesn't feel like training. I guess it's been a little bit of a struggle to like, be like, okay, I'm doing what's best for me. Cause when you see everyone else training, you're like, oh, or when I see everyone training, I'm like, I should be training right now. So that's been like kind of hard um, at a few points to be like, no, it's okay. Like I don't need to be training right now. If I start training right now for something and eight months. I'm going to feel not psyched by the time I get there. Yeah, that's where I'm at right now. Chilling and training to come.
1: I love Um, it. I love it. (laughs) Chilling. It's great. It's still early. Obviously, the teams need to be rounded out and these kinds of things. But one thing that's pretty obvious is that Yanya will likely be um, there climbing hard as she tends to do. And it's interesting, you guys didn't have a lot of head to head, you know, in the last couple of years. And um, do you think about the competition much? And, and how do you size up Yanya as somebody that you'll be facing?
0: I don't know. Like, like, I don't feel like I'm there to compete against her. I just haven't thought about it too much. For so long, like, the goal was to just qualify that I was like, oh, what do I want to do at the Olympics? And I actually talked to my sports psych about it. And I was like, is it bad if I don't have like, an outcome goal? And he was like, no. I was like, okay. My goal is just to, like, have that same joyful, happy mentality that I've had a glimpse of recently because I know that will also produce my best climbing. Yeah. And yeah, maybe I should believe that I could podium or do well. But yeah, I struggle with confidence still to this day. Yeah. I don't know. I, I really haven't thought about it too much and I'm not intimidated by anyone in particular because I'm not going there to try and compete against anyone really. It's such a weird event because it's like the Olympics. It's supposed to be the biggest event ever, but it's just like a random day. It's one set of boulders. It's one rope. Well, I guess if you make the final, then it's more. Right. But then the final is decided by like four boulders, one lead route. You could train so much for this one event or you could train like not at all. And maybe there wouldn't even really be a big difference. I don't know. I think in the past, like World Cups and the overall season and things like that held so much more weight because yeah, if you can prove that you can win a whole season, that's, I think, should be like more recognizable than winning the Olympics because, yeah. yeah, it's so random. It could be anyone's day, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure, which is simultaneously super exciting, but also like, yeah, to your point, a little liberating because maybe the sets are not your thing or yeah somebody just has a breakout day or you Natalia can walk in and just freaking dominate like you have for the last couple of years and walk away with it all it's such an interesting blip like you said I mean it's certainly not determining the best climber in the world it's just you know Mm -hmm. who had their day which is like crazy with regard to I'm sure the pressure but it sounds like you're you got a really healthy outlook on it. You're alleviating yourself of that pressure by looking at the process and being in the moment and how cool to be in the athlete village in Paris and just like the experience itself is far more than the couple hours of being yes. on the mats, you know?
0: I'm sure there will come a time where like I do start to feel more stressed about it and I'm sure I'll think about the outcome more. But for now, I'm like, oh it's so far away and hopefully I don't ever really get super stressed or anything like that. But I do remember reading about people's or climbers' experiences and saying how the intensity was unlike any other comp they'd ever done. The stress was through the roof. I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound very fun, you know? (laughs) So my goal is just to enjoy it.
1: We can shift now to our last chapter, which is a great way to take a deep cleansing breath from kind of the stress and the expectation And that's what brings you purpose outside of climbing. What are you psyched on? What are you passionate about beyond your own climbing?
0: I'm really into learning, I'd say. I graduated a year ago now. Yeah. Um, And then it was really weird to not be doing anything like school related. I didn't really like it. So I started like taking some courses again this past fall, which is really fun. And just like continuing to learn about the mind and psychology and like our happiness and well-being and positivity and things like that really yeah inspire me to like keep learning and that's something that I'm very passionate about right now and my whole plan had always been like okay graduate go get a master's start like my own like private practice and then I was like wait can be a pro climber. I am gonna do that for now. I can always go back to school because, like, I can't really do anything with a bachelor's in psych. I need to like at least have a master's. So, definitely want to go back to school at some point. But just like helping people, that has always been something that I don't know just makes me feel really good. And at the end of the day, if I can help someone that like puts a smile on my face, just being able to implement what I've learned and to help people like reach like a peace within themselves and in themselves and just like a a positive outlook on life. Um, Because from my past, like I've definitely been in like not a great place. And then like now I'm in a great place. And it's cool just to be like, I want to be able to help someone like how people were able to help me.
1: That's really beautiful. It's just um, so fulfilling to be able to make a positive mark on the world beyond... The sport that that you're excelling at. Mm-hmm. And I had an interesting conversation with Micha- Michaela Kirsch on this show and, and got to spend some time with her at the Red as well. And you know, very similar, got her uh, degree, went to graduate school and is a working professional, helping people, but also like out slaying 9A plus and traveling the world and kind of setting your own schedule. So um, clearly it can all be done. It's really inspiring to hear about your aspirations uh, on the career side. You said ultimately maybe sports psychology. Is that what you're looking at?
0: Yeah, more recently that's something I've been thinking about because, yeah, I didn't really have a specific like kind of psychology. I was thinking like cognitive, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with it besides just like general therapy. But I think relating it to sports could be really cool and just like, working with high-level athletes or even just any athlete.
1: Right on. I love that. Great. Well, stay tuned for that. Outside of that, what, what do you like to do to unwind? Do you have other hobbies that you do that take your mind off climbing in school and this kind of thing?
0: I got really into reading this past year, mainly fiction. It has yeah, it has changed my life. Like sometimes I'll be like, man, like I want to read more than I want to watch Netflix, which is is just like a new realization. Cause it's like <laughs> more interesting. I'm like, what's gonna happen next? Like I'm hooked. And I had never felt that feeling before because I think like in in college, especially in in high school, you're doing so much reading like for school that you like, or I felt like I didn't want to also read for fun. Like it was just too much reading. So I got really into fiction books and like my favorite author, Colleen Hoover, I like read two of her books back in like March or April and I like really liked them and I like started reading them and then I was like, okay, I want to read all of her books. So, in a few months, I read like all 24 of her books she had published. Holy She's published. And I'm like, okay, I'm waiting for like the next one. What's like, the genre? Keep them coming. Like romancey, um, fiction. Yeah. A lot of people think they're cringy, but I like them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you better. Who uh, have 20 some books in? That's great. Mm. I love that. So do you have a book? I love like the Struggle Book Club. I typically ask guests like if they've got something to recommend, what would you recommend for me or for listeners?
0: From Colleen.
1: Any, anything that you've been reading, anything that you might be not embarrassed mm. to recommend.
0: <laughs> Let's see. Some books that people yeah have that aren't like super cheesy. I'd say like The Silent Patient, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Verity by Colin Hoover.
1: That's enough right there.
0: Housemaid. Yeah, there you go.
1: That's going to, that'll take me a year, but thank you. You know, the the five pages I am able to get through before my head hits the pillow. Last thing I want to talk about here in this um, uh, chapter is um, about advocacy. And I need to shout out specifically Access Fund here because you did an Access Fund Instagram takeover probably two years ago or a year and a half ago. And as part of that, called on people to give, like to become monthly donors. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. And so now, like ever since then, I've been like a monthly donor of the Access Fund. So thank you slash Access Fund should thank you because they've been taking my money consistently since then, but they're doing great work. (laughs) And so I'd love to hear about any work that you feel is important that they're doing or that you've done with them and maybe any other organizations that are out there that you want to shout out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think... Just seeing how much time, like, people have, like, put into making things safe, making climbing mean, crags, like, accessible, clean even, um, has been, like, game changer. And going to the red and, like, seeing some of the roads, like, they're pretty bad. And, and I was, like, talking to other people there, and they're, like, yeah, they come fill them the potholes, like, every year. Like, yeah. that is a lot of work. And that's what keeps us being able to go to these places that we, like, love to climb at. And so, yeah, go donate so that we can keep climbing. (laughs) But I said just like advocating, like the gondola was a big thing. in And like wanting to close being and like potentially not being able to climb anymore. Sometimes we forget. Just like sign the petition. Do the little things like that because they can make a difference.
1: Um, Yeah. Hell yeah.
0: Yeah. and, And the long run
1: yeah especially as the sport continues to grow it continues to get more popular and as people move from gym to getting psyched outdoors having that access and being responsible stewards of the climbing areas that we do have access to is just so critical thank you for drawing Even attention just like to it
0: cleaning up after yourself i'd say is like the biggest thing i think going from like a gym to an outdoor crag it's, you can't just leave your tape there or your food or anything like that just looking after your yourself and your surroundings
1: yeah no doubt i love it natalia it's great well thank you you have got a long career ahead of you as a climber but obviously well beyond that and i'm so grateful for your time here today i wish you so much luck as you train and stay in the moment and have just like the coolest year ahead of you let's keep in touch i'd love to continue to follow your journey here
0: thank you so much for having me
1: And that wraps up such a delightful and really inspiring conversation with Natalia Grossman. I hope you guys loved this. I personally really responded to what she was sharing there in the mental game chapter, like how she recognized this heaviness in her mindset and then made an intentional shift to embracing joy and then saw an immediate impact from that shift on her performance on the wall. I mean, it's just such a cool perspective, I think for all of us as we try hard and at least kind of just speaking for myself right now, perhaps get a little bit too serious about the outcome sometimes. So thank you Natalia for bringing that literal and metaphorical smile of yours to this conversation. And by the way, if you'd like to see that big smile of hers, you can view the uncut video of this conversation right now, along with a bonus episode with Natalia over on Patreon. In that bonus chat, Natalia answers listener questions, she predicts what the future of comp climbing will be, shares her biggest weakness and how she's training it, reveals a game-changing recovery hack that she's been doing, and so much more. You can get instant access to all of that right now at zero cost with a free trial over at patreon.com slash thestruggleclimbingshow or right there in your Apple Podcast app if you're an iPhone person. And you'll also, by the way, get instant access to more than 40 hours of other bonus content featuring Adam Andra, Chris Sharma, Nina Williams, Alex Honnold, and so many more, plus the pro clinics that we've done on Stronger Fingers with Dr. Tyler Nelson, Advanced Bouldering with Allison Vest, Moonboard with Ravioli Biceps, and Performance Hacks with Hazel Finlay, just to name a few. It's all there for just a few bucks a month or zero cost right now with a free trial so you can check it out. Thank you so much for supporting the show if you can. I'm working really hard for you here. Huge thanks and appreciation to our show sponsors who have brought you this episode at zero cost. Check your show notes for links and special discounts from those guys that are only available to Struggle listeners, and also you can see all of the show's brand sponsors and special deals by just popping over to thestruggleclimbingshow.com slash deals. The Struggle is carbon neutral in partnership with the Honnold Foundation. Awesome. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin, and The Struggle is a proud member of the Plugtone Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. You can follow along with the show on YouTube and Instagram at The Struggle Climbing Show. And you can also shoot me a note there. I'd love to hear from you. I hope training and climbing are going awesome. And if you're struggling like me, well, at least the struggle makes us stronger.